0: Welcome to Out of Zion with Susan Michael, an exploration of the Bible and the land of Israel. From ancient biblical sites to the story behind the stories, join Susan on a journey through the most exciting book on the planet. Hit the subscribe button for future episodes, which will deepen your faith and bring the Bible to life. And now here's our host, Susan Michael. Well,
1: hey there, and welcome to our Going Deeper episode this week. We are so excited to have with us today, Dr. Chris McKinney, who is an archeologist and an expert in the realm of the Israelites exit from Egypt. They're wandering in the desert, the tabernacle. We're going to talk about a lot of these really interesting things that we've been reading about in our walk through the Bible. So welcome and let's get started. So, um, Dr. Chris McKenny, I'm going to address you as Chris, but I want to emphasize your amazing uh, background. Uh, you have a Ph.D. from bar Ilan University and you have a master's degree from bar Ilan, and another master's from the Jerusalem University College, where I also attended, although many years earlier than you did. And, um, I know you're an adjunct, uh, faculty member of several universities. And, um, I appreciate you're also an ordained minister and, um, involved in church leadership. And, you know, I have here your 16 page CV of all your archaeological experience and all the papers and scholarly works that you've written and co-edited and, it's just so impressive, and uh, we are so appreciative of you giving of your time today uh, to be with us. So, a warm welcome to you.
0: Thank you very much, Susan. And it's my pleasure to, to be on the podcast and to offer any insight to uh, what I consider just to be a fascinating uh, section of the Bible.
1: I would like to talk about, though, now about the tabernacle. And um, I find the story so fascinating that God calls Moses up to the mountain and he like proposes to his people a covenant, yeah. what I liken mm-hmm. to a marriage. And, right. um, and they say, yes, we'll do everything the Lord says. So it's like, okay, the, we're going to seal the deal. And uh, he gives the Ten Commandments. And then the next thing is he tells them how to build this tabernacle so that mm-hmm. God can come down off the mountain and dwell amongst his people. And this is what sets him apart from all the other ideas of gods that were, you know, way out there. They couldn't be touched. They couldn't be mm-hmm. really known. And here the God of the Israelites wanted to be known. He wanted to dwell with his people. So uh, share with us about the tabernacle. I know um, it's, it does have some similarities to other buildings in yeah. the in the region, and uh, none of that bothers me. God God was speaking to His people within their cultural context, but uh, right. explain to us about the tabernacle.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the the tabernacle, in, in some ways, is it, it's kind of just a, another part of this of this grand sweep of the Exodus event that is. If you don't if you don't have uh the tabernacle you're kind of left with a salvation without sanctification if you will uh you know you're, you're not and really that's what the tabernacle is about it's about sanctification it's about uh making holy you know god is holy uh and you have to come into his presence uh in a correct way and so uh when we talk about the tabernacle i think uh well, one of the first things is, is everything you said i completely agree with and as it happens uh, one of the things that we're doing with, with Gesher is developing products and particularly a documentary, uh, that will be about this very topic uh, where we're going to be interviewing a number of scholars, um, talking about the, the tabernacle. And it's something that we're really excited about. Hopefully it will be, uh, out in the, um, uh, who knows? We don't have, a, we have a release date, but we're really excited about this, about this very idea. And so whenever I talk about the tabernacle, I think one of the most interesting things about it is to go to its predecessor. And its predecessor, I would say, is is actually in the Garden of Eden. Um, Because if we think of the tabernacle and its features, we have a structure uh, that has uh, really three main parts. It has courtyard, it has a holy place, and the most holy place, sometimes called the, the Holy of Holies. And these three parts are a set of Sacred space that include a number of utensils. Now, the courtyard itself, on the outside, it has the um, it has the the bronze altar, the sacrificial altar. It has a um, a bronze uh, laver or a wash basin, which is important for the priests to sanctify and purify themselves with, as well as washing utensils. As you would enter in through the uh, the first veil of the. Uh, of the tabernacle, you would encounter other utensils. The bread of the presence on your right, uh, or the table of the showbread. Uh, on your left, you would have uh, what's called the menorah or the lampstand, which is styled after to look like a tree. Uh, it has all of these v- uh, vegetation characteristics. Uh, and then you would have, of course, the altar of incense. Uh, where you have incense burning. We have all these descriptions and Exodus describing just the right type of incense you need to be holy. And then directly right in front of you, you have the, uh, the next veil, which has the cherubim on it. These, what I, what I would call th- a divine throne wardens with their wings guarding the way into god's most sacred space and of course if you were to go in there if you were the high priest or if you go to israel and visit temna you can see what that would look like uh or at least a reconstruction you can you would of course find the ark of the covenant which is a two-part item uh the chest which includes the two stone tablets uh and the uh the jar of manna as well as uh, aaron's staff and then the mercy seat, which again has these two cherubim figures, and most people don't usually think of this, but also, um, and it's very clear in Exodus, the very presence of God—not just uh, symbolically, but physically there—in the form of the pillar of fire and cloud, depending on what time of day or night it was. Now, so just giving that like broader perspective, and obviously we could say much more about how this plays a role in in Exodus and Leviticus, we have everything you're supposed to do in terms of sacrifice. But let's think about each one of those features as we go back in time to think about the Garden of Eden. Uh, The Garden of Eden, of course, with with Adam uh, and and later she's called uh, Eve in the story, uh, who are created, they're placed in a location where God is. Uh, And so this is a divine, sacred space they of course are provided for. Uh, they are given food they can eat from. Uh, most especially, we're told that they can eat from the tree of life. Uh, well, in my opinion, and many would agree with me, that the menorah itself is likely styled after the idea of the tree of life. Uh, that it is a place where you have uh, God's presence and symbolic of what is there. And this is kind of our first hint uh as to what the tabernacle it might be modeled off of. In fact, if we fast forward in the Bible to the book of Hebrews, we learn that Moses is actually uh, given a vision of what he saw on the mountain of the real thing. And so he actually is is given what was actually in God's court, uh, uh what I like to call the the room where it happens. Uh, you know, this, this, this same place where Isaiah in Isaiah chapter six, you know, says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. Where Ezekiel has, you know, the vision of the, uh, of the wheel within the wheel as it's in the Jerusalem temple. And, and we have John and Daniel all, you know, all doing the same thing. And so he's given these, this vision and he said, make a copy of what you see. And I'll instruct you as well as, uh, these workmen, Batsalel and Ohaliav, to make these, uh, to make these items. And so one of those features is the, the tree of life, which I think is connected with, um, the, the menorah. Uh, but the other thing is, uh, the table of showbread, uh, is a symbolic, uh, element that shows that Adam and Eve could have eaten, uh, from any of the, uh, food that was all available to them, except, of course, the one tree they weren't supposed to. And so if we, if we apply that to the tabernacle, we have the consecrated, those made righteous and uh, representative for the people, which of course is the priesthood who share in this meal uh, with God, who share in his presence and they're provided for, which they also function as an inter in an intermediary role for the people that remain unable to uh, because of uh, because of sin because of uh what of course happened in in uh in Eden. And so as you go further, of course, you have the altar of incense, which represents the idea of of uh of, of God's uh, you know, the, the smell that God has and this aroma. But I would say one of the most important connections is the Ark of the Covenant itself, uh, because the Ark of the Covenant represents God's, uh, of course, God's presence, his physical presence in the tabernacle. And that also is representative of what you have going on in Genesis 3 Genesis 2 and 3 where God is walking among them and the most obvious connection is actually after the fall and after the curse is given where we have Adam and Eve driven away from the the access to the tree of life and what we actually have is a uh, an angel or a, a cherubim set up with a flaming sword guarding the entrance to Eden, into the tree of life, and God stationing him there to protect uh, man from having access to the tree of life. Well, if you plot that on the tabernacle, which also gets repeated, of course, in in the Solomonic temple, you have almost exactly the same thing, where God's presence uh, has these has these tiers of access to because of. Uh, the, the, nature of sin because of the nature that man has to come in God's, to God's presence. It has to go through all of these steps to become clean and righteous and holy before they can come into God's presence. And so what we see then is, uh, that the tabernacle is that all important step to begin the process where we can get back to Eden, uh, where you can have, uh, mankind, man and woman made in the image of God, coming back into his uh, presence. And that's actually another really interesting thing as well. Uh, The tabernacle itself doesn't, of course, or I should say the Ark of the Covenant, doesn't have a image. Now you might say, well, it does have the cherubim, which of course are images. They are most likely meant to depict people with wings, although some people think they may have been lions and that type of thing. Um, But they're most likely uh, uh, angelic-like divine beings but they're not the object of worship. The object of worship is an invisible, although sometimes visible in the form of pillar of fire and pillar of cloud, but there is no image. Uh, If you went to any other um, Egyptian or Canaanite or Mesopotamian temple, what you would find, of course, is a wooden, usually covered with metal, precious metal, idol that depicts the deity. Now, even they didn't think that that was the full deity. They thought it was the symbol of that deity. It reflected their power on earth. Now, what's so interesting is, is that we have the same terminology of being an image compared to people. In other words, if we think of the way that we are created, we are made in the image of God to be reflective of his glory in the same way that the pagan mind considered how idols were meant to reflect the divine deities that they that they worshipped, uh, and it, it, so someone reading that in that context would immediately make that connection. Now, um, that's harder for us living in the twenty first century without you know walking down the street. Or like if you are an Israelite living growing up in Egypt, and you pass all these all these temples, in fact, you even see these these uh, metal. Uh, uh, gods, these idols going on display. But to say that we are made in the image of God, uh, as it is in, uh, the Edenic temple, as it's sometimes called, is, is very, very important to, to make those connections. So that's the first thing I'd say is that when we think of the tabernacle, its construction, it really is at its basis a return back to what Eden was all about. But as you kind of hinted at, it doesn't just uh, if God gives instructions, but they're not starting at let's say ground zero. Uh, they're not going to be able to make a one-for-one uh, build of the tabernacle and the ark of the covenant without some cultural context. And so, if you've read through Exodus, you actually have the instructions twice. I read it through recently with my with my boys, uh, and I, I got them to pay attention. Better when I called these are kind of like the Lego instructions. You know, the Lego instructions on how to uh, how to build uh, the Ark and the Tabernacle and so on. And actually, the reason why we have it twice is because one is in the first giving of the covenant, which is already broken because they have the Golden Calf episode. And then the second part is giving it again, but as they're building it and as it's becoming uh, completed. And so there's been a number of really important studies. Um, over the years that archaeology has heavily contributed to, uh, the single most important discovery is, uh, really one of the most well-known discoveries, and that is, is, is King Tut's tomb or Tutankhamun. Um, it was one of the, it was the only tomb that was not, uh, looted in antiquity. Uh, and as I always like to say, um, uh, King Tut's was really an unimportant figure. I mean, he died at the age of, uh, of nineteen, uh, and his tomb is actually much smaller than uh, many of the others of his forebearers and, and people that followed him. Uh And it's only really because his his tomb was so small and accidentally was not discovered in antiquity that we have it. But from the amazing wealth that was in there, one can only imagine what Tutmos the or Ramses. Uh, would have would have would have had but even with just uh this kind of really unimportant pharaoh that we all know because of the discovery uh we we see just the absolute wealth of egypt and one of the 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 most important features that was found in his um uh, in his uh tomb was what's called the Anubis chest. Anubis is a a jackal uh deity uh in in ancient egypt but it is what what this is is it's a it's a a box that holds holy objects and it has a figure on top of it the figure of anubis and it also it's overlaid with gold it's made i believe from acacia wood and it is connected with uh, with poles that are overlaid with gold uh and one of the one of the really interesting things is uh cuz Scholars have often noted that if you put the rings for the poles on the side, as it's often depicted, even in the movies with, like, with Indiana Jones, for instance, yeah. uh, it, wouldn't <laughs> it wouldn't work well because it would just <laughs> fall right off. So they actually have the the poles running under the feet or running right underneath the the main uh, the main part of the chest, and so that's one of the ways which we can now most likely reconstruct how. This, the, the ark would have, would have worked, but not just in terms of the build, but in terms of also its function. It held holy objects inside of it were important objects. Uh, perhaps even some of the canopic jars and things of that nature were held in that to, uh, to help, uh, in this case, King Tut in the afterlife. And so that's just one object. There's others as well. Um, there's a, an excellent book. That I can, uh, point your, your listeners to that was just published this past year, uh, by a, an Egyptologist named David Falk, who it's called the Ark of the Covenant in its Egyptian context. Very well illustrated, very well written, uh, with, I think a hundred or so photos where he makes the case that the, uh, Ark of the Covenant really is heavily influenced by New Kingdom Egypt. Uh, Of course, there's the example I just gave of the Anubis chest, but we have other things such as mobile thrones or what's called palanquins, which would have uh, some of these objects, including winged figures on them that would, that would carry, uh, carry kings as well as carry, um, uh, other figures. We have these solar, or I should say these, these ships, or they're called barks that have a shrine on top of them that would carry the god, you know, the small idol from one part of the temple to actually go on display and be brought and placed inside of the Holy of Holies. And so all of these things, there's not that's not to say a one-to-one between um, the Ark of the Covenant and something exactly you have in Egyptian culture, but there's so many parallels that you see that the people who made the Ark of the Covenant, Bezalel and Ohaliab, you know, the two craftsmen that are mentioned, are using the same ideas that we have coming out of Egypt. It's, it's very difficult to, to look at what you have in King Tut's tomb and what you see there and not see some similarities. And yet that's what many biblical scholars have to do because they want to say, that a book like Exodus dates to a much later period, and so David Falk has done a great service in showing that these parallels that exist between the book of Exodus uh, and, I should say, that the Exodus description of the Ark of the Covenant uh, and what you see in in, uh, in Egypt really can only be dated to the New Kingdom, and again, that's fifteen fifty to about eleven fifty BC. After it, you have a major shift, a major change, and so that's. That's one element, but but the the Egyptian parallels don't really end there. In fact, in my opinion, one of the most fascinating ones goes back to uh, the guy we talked about earlier with Ramses II, and on those same reliefs, right, which I talked about uh, at the Battle of Kadesh, we have uh, two of these that are that are preserved. The best one is at a place in, in southern Egypt called Abu Simbel, way up in the top of his temple he has on this uh this battle relief he has a picture of his war tent in in a plan view as if you were you know a a bird looking down birds eye view and he has a courtyard a wide a rectangular courtyard with with shields around it he has his fort- his, his forces all around this courtyard and in the midst of this courtyard seemingly to be east oriented he has another smaller rectangular structure which has worshipers bowing down to it and at the very back in the innermost part of this he has a separate room and in that room he has a cartouche which in uh for egyptians that's a uh, basically a small oval which has the name usually of the of the pharaoh and on this cartouche is his name and on both sides of this cartouche we have two winged figures with their wings pointing up, looking at it. And it, I mean, you look at this and you say, this is the tabernacle. <laughs> this is exactly what the the tabernacle looked like. And this was the function of the tabernacle. And so what it actually is in, in the, the relief is a war tent where you have Ramsey's own tent that he is uh, camping in among his fighting men as he goes to the battle to fight with them. And so if we think of that as what God is building, where God is empowering and inspiring, uh, Betsalel and Ohaliav through the instruction of Moses to build, is more or less the same thing. It is a war tent where he, as their warrior king, is residing above these throne wardens, these cherubim, uh, and he is communicating and oftentimes giving instructions on how to fight the enemies. We can see this with, uh, with Sihon, king of, o- uh, 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 with Sihon, king of the Amorites. When they go there, you know, Moses goes before him and he asks, okay, what should we do? And he tells him this is what you're supposed to do. Same thing with Og. When the mantle gets passed, uh, to Joshua, same idea. He sees, uh, the commander of Yahweh's host, and he gives him the information. This is what you do to fight the battle. And so we have here again the idea that, uh, that, that God is a much better, uh, version of what Pharaoh claims to be. And he, when they, they have the using of this warrior tent shrine, uh, to have the tabernacle. In. Now, that's not to say there aren't innovations. Of course there are. Uh, we have, Uh, We don't have other gods present. There's only one god that is present. We have the commandments, or I should say the covenant, placed inside of the tabernacle. We have these other features, but the parallels are really striking once you see the uh, visuals. Now, another person I would point your readers to is a scholar named Joshua Berman out of Bar-Ilan University, who has made a lot of these suggestions and built on a lot of these ideas as well now one last thing before we move on one of the really interesting things as well is what's inside of the ark of the covenant now most people will remember of course the the, the jar of manna and uh moses or aaron's staff that um that budded but the other thing is of course the tablets now in every depiction we have of those stone tablets what do we have on there on one tablet it's the five the first five commandments and on the other tablet it's the other five commandments. One is associated with how you're to relate to God. The other ones uh to be how you're so, uh, supposed to associate, excuse me, with uh with your neighbor and 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 others. Uh but if you look in your Bible, it never says that. <laughs> it never says that you know the the tablets are a uh, meant to just only have the the 10 commandments. In fact, if they're doing that, it's a gross use of uh, of writing space because these prints were probably quite large. And we know from, uh, this very period that there, the idea of a covenant was ratified through these treaties and especially the idea of a, uh, what's called a vassal suzerain treaty where you have a great king who is going to make treaties with a lesser people. Uh, and th- this is mostly connected with Uh, the kingdom of the Hittites. And we have a lot of these that were discovered in Turkey, uh, thankfully, because most of their archive uh, was intact. And we can find many of the same features that appear in the book of Deuteronomy, such as the long historical prologue, the blessings and the cursings uh, that we have in Deuteronomy, which have direct parallels to what you see in these Hittite treaties. And one of the features that I really want to point out is what they would often do in these treaties is at the very end, they would say, okay, you agree to all these. And if you don't, this is going to happen to you. Uh, you will be uh, cursed. You know, that's the blessing and cursing side. And then you, you we both agree to it. You take one copy and deposit it in your temple. I'll take one copy and deposit it in my temple. So it's on a really public display but in a divine space that that the gods are called to bear that you make sure you keep up your end of the bargain so that's a way that they were trying to make sure that this covenant this treaty would stay intact well most likely what you have then if the bible if the the exodus covenant uh can be connected with this which i think makes really good sense kenneth kitchen for instance uh uh, very well-known Egyptologist, uh, I like to say he has magnum opuses. Uh, I mean, he has uh, just a, a huge amount of of of, of texts that he's that he's translated over the years. But one of the main things he did is compare all the different treaties of the second and first millennium, uh, and, and then made the point that I that I just made. So if that's if that's true, that 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 what we have on these tablets is a treaty. That, that is the treaty between the God of Israel and, uh, and, Isra- and Israel itself, then it would make sense that both copies would actually be uh, duplicates, and they would be both placed inside of the main shrine and warrior tent, both of the overlord, that would be God as the king of Israel, as well as his vassals, which would be Israel itself. And so it's placed inside of this chest, much in the same way that we saw with Egyptian, uh, chests where they hold these very important pieces of, of information. And so when they carry this from place to place, they're carrying not only, uh, the idea that, you know, God's going before them, they're bringing with them also this covenant that they're going to, of course, ratify later on when they get to, get to the land. So a lot of important, a lot of really interesting connections that um uh, that great theologians that have gone had no access to because archaeology hadn't been developed yet the, you know the Hattusha the capital of the Hittites had never been excavated uh and so we can see more and more of these parallels uh that I don't I would I don't like to use the word uh, prove the bible but actually help us understand what these connections really are and actually tease out new uh, uh ways of interpreting it that uh, get us much closer to the original understanding of the original author and the original audience.
1: Yes, and I just want to mention, you know, uh, one of the the things that people use if they want to debunk the Bible, and I I always bring this up because I want to give our listeners answers so that they can respond to some mm-hmm. of these things. And so one of the things is that, well, the, it's not unique that there were these same elements in Egypt or in the culture at the time. So you've given us a great example there with the Ark of the Covenant, the tabernacle. But for me, I think it's the flip side. Actually, it shows me how accurate the Bible is because it's rightly reflecting of the time and the culture. So if, if right. God were to have come to them 3,500 years ago in the wilderness and said, okay, I want you to build a tabernacle, now go lay your concrete foundation and then get mm-hmm. your, your wood frame. I'm going to be like, that's, that's right. just totally foreign.
0: <laughs> yeah, You yeah. can tell you that don't... that
1: was written later and put in. Right, But this right. was not. This is very, very accurate of something that they were familiar with. But I love the way you describe the connection back to the Garden of Eden. And that what God intended all along was to have this space whereby He fellowshiped with man, and due to our sin, um, we we lost that space. But His goal always was and still is to get mankind back to that space and get us back into fellowship with Him. And the tabernacle, all of these beautiful things that you described, were later than just in put into the permanent temple, and it was like a spiritual reality carried from Eden to the tabernacle to the temple and into the body of Christ today. And and what we have to look forward to uh, when heaven comes to earth, we have new heaven, new earth. I mean, that's, that's where God Amen. is yeah. headed. So it's, it's really beautiful. And so we just want to thank you for sharing with us from such a a place of knowledge and of expertise and uh, to share with us your excitement over the Bible and over uh, the the stories and the accuracy of it. So uh, we just want to thank you for giving up your time and sharing with us today. And once again, we link in the show notes to the uh, Gesher Media Project that he referred to. And and as soon as you have your documentary done, uh, Chris, please come back and talk to us further about the tabernacle and the temple as you'll be covering it in this documentary. So thank you. Thank everyone for joining us. Uh, see you back in a few days for Walk Through the Bible. And until then, God
0: bless. We hope you have enjoyed this episode of Out of Zion with Susan Michael. Be sure to subscribe to Out of Zion now on Apple Podcasts, cpnshows.com, YouTube, or wherever you like to listen and learn. Out of Zion with Susan Michael is a production of ICEJ USA. All rights reserved.